Hello, this is Deborah Anderson, the Black Woman Animator, coming back to you with another video. And in this video, I have Carlton Zapp. Welcome. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, yes. Carlton Zapp out of Brooklyn, New York. What's good? <laughs> All right. So you're from Brooklyn, New York. Um, how was it growing up? Well, growing up in Brooklyn back in the day was really something. I mean, you know, I lived in... Uh, Orange, New Jersey in a housing project, my family, and then I lived in uh, Brooklyn, New York, a Montgomery Street project. So I was shifting between projects. And I just saw a whole lot, you know, whether it was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, you know, crime and drugs, you know, it was the beginning of the hip hop movement. It was a lot going on. It was just, you know, it was a different time. And, you know, you had to scrap, you had to learn how to fight, you had to learn how to kind of protective family and it was, you know, you, you learned the elements of what it was to be an important black man at that time. Mm -hmm. um, like what did you, what do you consider is your culture growing up? Like as a, a black American, like, are you, are you Caribbean at all? Or are you just black and black, <laughs> like Southern black? Like what, what's your culture? <laughs> well, my, you know, I, I don't know how to, break it down anymore to say that I am a original black man and my culture is about my ancestors and the shoulders that I stand on from the people before me. Mm -hmm. and in terms of, um, you know, my movement back East, it was like whatever I could do legally to make money, whether mm -hmm. it was shoveling snow, whether mm -hmm. it was shining shoes, mm -hmm. people laughed at me, but I grinded. Yeah, so you know, it was that kind of movement. Um, uh, like, what was your fa favorite like tradition in your household growing up that your family did? Did y'all have any like kind of traditions that y'all had? <laughs> our traditions, <laughs> our traditions was a a full meal every once in a while. Our mm -hmm. traditions was watching good times with my brothers, particularly watching Thelma. Which <laughs> <was funny. laughs> uh, you know what I mean? And our tradition was just, you know, believing in God and showing love. Mm -hmm. That's the Brooklyn way. Right. Yeah, I remember, like, in my era, it was, like, TGIF watching, like, Family Matters and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Back then, like, TV was big, like, like you had to run because you you ain't had no DVR or like or you had to like be in front of the TV when it started. Yeah, yeah, but I was before that. We we were on like Sparkle, Cooley mm -hmm. High, Imitation mm -hmm. of Life. You know, mm -hmm. we were, it was more that kind of thing that really kept us glued. I remember Imitation of Life in particular was the first time I saw my mother cry watching a TV show, and that kind of that touched my heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> no, hold on, no real talk. First of all, I wanted to be alive. That's number one, because a lot of cats weren't really, I just saw a lot happening in the streets. So number one, I wanted to be alive. And secondly, the thing I wanted to do, I think the most is, I didn't really 100% know, I just knew that I was gifted musically, put music together and stuff like that. But all I knew, is that I wanted to find a way, whatever it was, to make money to move my mom out of the housing project 
so that she could have a better life. Whatever that would have been legally, that's mm -hmm. what um, I saw myself doing. Um, were your like were your parents supportive of your interests growing up? Well, when you say parents, I didn't really have. You know, it was nine of us, and there wasn't really a dad around. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, my mom had a couple of my siblings when she was really young, so it took her a while to mature to a certain point. So mm -hmm. it was a village. It was other people in the community that believed in me and told me, hey, you got a nice smile, you got swag, you from Brooklyn, you gonna go do this. And even on the other side in New Jersey, when I was in uh, Orange, uh, when I was DJing, uh, which is near Newark, New Jersey, whoever's not familiar with that area, and um, I got a lot of support from there, people that I really looked up to um, there, you know, the, the local church and people that just said, you know what, there's a little something different about you. And uh, and they liked my hustle, you know, because a lot of cats didn't really want to shoe shine and all that. That seemed like some white man stuff, so they didn't really want to mess with that. But mm -hmm. I wanted to bring money home. My mom could eat and I didn't have to go to jail. Right. Uh so how did you end up in Los Angeles? Ha! <laughs> Whoa, that's, you, you just hit me with the Tyson uppercut right there. Go in, go in. <laughs> go in, that's the whole gravy. Well, mm -hmm. how, I'm gonna try to really round and make it as, as compact as I can. Mm -hmm. um, one day I was at home in a housing project and I was looking out the window after hearing my mom crying. I asked my brother, why mom crying? And my brother said she's crying because we ain't got, she, we don't have food to eat. This is my brother who passed away, rest in uh, peace. And mm -hmm. so I remember as a little boy, skinny little boy, had my big underwear on, big t-shirt, on soda. And I looked out the window and I saw a plane in the sky. And I said, one day I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to go far and mama never be hungry again. And so from that point on, I started getting better grades. I stayed focused. And then I got a, I saved my money from shoe shining and uh, shoveling snow. And I got enough money to take get on a bus and come to L.A. And nobody believed me except a couple local friends. And that's what really drove me to Los Angeles, getting on a bus four days, coming to Los Angeles, not knowing one soul in the whole city. How old were you? I was 21 and a half. That's crazy. Um, it is crazy. Like what I had, let me just say, I had like, you know, I had 178 bucks. That's the, that's the cash that I had. So what did you do when you got here? I got here, as soon as I got off the bus, I was downtown LA, uh, Los Angeles Street. I asked somebody randomly, I said, which way do you go to get to Hollywood? They say, you got to get on an RTD bus. That's what it was called. And you get a transfer. And you take get on Wilshire, take Highland. And when you get up there, that's where it is. When I got there, I looked around. I was like, whoa. And um, I remember walking up Hollywood Boulevard. And particularly what had an impact on me was the... Uh, the man's, I don't even know what it's called that now, the man's Chinese theater. Because I said, oh, Lucy, and all of them shot there. Mm -hmm. So I was on my Hollywood job for a minute. And <laughs> then I just, I found a one-bedroom place, a, a one-bedroom, one-room place off of Franklin that was like $35 a night. 
and it was a real piece of garbage. Everybody used the same toilet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it was this is before cell phones. It was just a, a portable phone in the courtyard, and that's all it was. And but I had a basketball. That's all I brought with me, and so. I got to keep that in the game because I didn't have much clothes, but my ball was my joint. <laughs> and that's what's up. Um, so, like, how did you end up uh, getting a job working at Hanna-Barbera? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, playing basketball, what I would do is every night, every day, because, you know, money was getting short, $35 a day. So what I would do, my every day I would go and look for work wherever I could. And then at night, I go play ball at Hollywood High. And that was the thing that was incredible because when I go play ball, at that time, I used to play ball with Denzel Washington before he would be. Um, uh, uh, Magic had just came to town a couple years. Um, Arsenio Hall, all the guys used to play ball in the Hollywood League. And I used to give it to him. I'm from Brooklyn. I used to give it to him. They used to say, who's that cat that's killing us, smiling like that? And so that I... I created relationships that kind of way. And there's mm -hmm. one white boy, I'll never forget, Richard Happy. He wasn't no good, but he had the nice sneakers and all that. And he always wanted to play on my team so we can beat the mother cats. And he mm -hmm. told me one day, he said, look, if you go to UCLA and these other places, they have boards that tell you where you can look for work and where you could um, find better places to live. So I would take his advice and do that. And this one particular day, um, Someone told me you should go to the studios. And so I went to uh, Warner Brothers, Universal, and um, I went to, uh, it was another one, Warner Brothers, Universal, Universal and uh, it was another studio. But anyway, on the way back, I saw Hanna-Barbera. And mm -hmm. so I walked in there, went to fill out an application. It was a little prejudice. They ain't show me no love. The guy actually told me, if you don't get out of here, I'm gonna call the uh, security. So on my way out, I look in the front gate, there's an old man that's working on plants down in the front, right in front of the guards booth where you come in off of Coanga. Mm -hmm. And I'm bad now, cause two things are happening. My money's getting short, which means I might have to go back east and I don't want to. And I'm feeling disrespected because nobody won't let me fill out an application. So I asked the old man, I'd say to him, you, what are you doing with those plants? They look horrible, old man. And he said, what you talking about? I said, you got geraniums there. You need Dusty Millers. The direct sunlight going to kill them things. And he said, what do you know about that? I said, I know. I just came out here from New York, and I used to steal flowers from my grandmother. And I know what I'm talking about. And he says, well, what's your name? I said, Carl. I said, oh, dude, what's your name? <laughs> he pointed up at the sign and said, I'm Bill Hanna. I own this damn place. <laughs> and I almost crapped on myself. I said, <gasps> and then I start trying to kiss his boots. I said, yo, I said, I'm a big fan of Scooby and Yogi and McGilla Gorilla and Chop Cat and Huckleberry Hound and Third. And he says, no, no, no. I like the way you talked to me before. <laughs> you were for real. And I was able to relate to that. He said, you got a phone, or you got a number. And I had the number of the one phone in the courtyard where I stayed. Mm -hmm. Gave him the number. He, uh, and I didn't think he was going to call me. Mm -hmm. Because I was telling him, I'm stealing flowers from my grandmother. And, oh, <laughs> man, you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, and I, you know, I kind of was kind of hard on him. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And then I brought on Nate for a couple of days. And then after about three days, someone in the courtyard said, yo, anybody here named Carlton? I said, yeah. He said, oh, white dude on the phone, man. <laughs> and when I got there, picked up the phone and said, Mr. Hannah, I want to apologize. And he was laughing. He said, I love that kind of job. He said, come to my office tomorrow at 9 o'clock, and you and I are going to have a conversation. And that was the beginning mm -hmm. of all that, how my introduction to the whole industry was. So can you tell everybody, like, what did you do at Hanna-Barbera? Oh, when I first came in, he sat down with me, and he told me uh, he wanted to hear my whole story. I told him I had a cousin that was dealing with HIV. I told him about, you know, the crime and the housing project and all that. He listened and he told me that he grew up in a depression era. See, I'm not a black boy that grew up back east. But, and you got to realize I was young. So to say black boy was appropriate when you like 19 or 20 or whatever. So mm -hmm. he said, but um, I thought about what you said all night. And it touched my heart because I had to raise six sisters and lost everything. I'm going to help you get yourself in the door. But if you mess up, don't say nobody gave you a break. Just hold up to it. And then I started in the stock room. I started putting water bottles all around the studio. And then a different artist, I had to learn about the number, different number. Because back then they did, it wasn't just computer. They did a whole lot of stuff with real paint. So you had to learn about the different paintbrushes and the different kind of ink and that sort of thing. So um, that was the beginning. And I had to deal with a lot of with some racism there. It was you know me being a young African-American without any training. Uh, I had to deal and just kind of button it up, yeah. and, you know, wear my big boy pants and work through it. So tell us about you moving on up. <laughs> moving on up was what happened was is that after time, um, after doing what I was doing, the beauty, beauty about my job at that time is you get to know every aspect of animation. You mm -hmm. deal with the background artists. You deal with the voiceover talent. You deal with the ink and paint people. You deal with the uh, the lawyers. You deal you 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 deal with everybody. And because of my personality type, I got to really connect with some people, and it was really a nice thing. But the word got around. Mr. Hanna called me to his office, and he says, "I'm hearing really good things about you." Mm -hmm. And then uh, he said, uh, "Things changed after he said." you know what, I want you to come home and meet my wife. And so um, he called me to his office, I'll never forget this. And um, he called his wife up and said, honey, you remember the black kid that I told you from back east? I want to bring him home from back And I can hear her, and I, me and her, gosh, my, I love her, she changed my life too. But this is early. <laughs> He said, uh, I heard in the background saying, Bill, you can't trust those people. They steal and everything. You just can't bring people like that home. And he could tell I heard that. And he said, go out in the lobby and I'll call you back. And so I went out there. And so he called me back and he said, it's all set. Tomorrow you'll be at my house at quarter to eight. Gave me the address and all that. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go. I'm, <laughs> I'm from the projects. These are, I, you know, I see these are bougie white people with money and all that. I just wasn't confident on how in their household. On the street, I could work it out, but not in the household. And so that's how I did. I showed up at her house. And when I got there, it was, it was tense. Mm -hmm. she, it was like, 
it was like Hillary Clinton having dinner with Donald Trump. I mean, she looked at me, I looked at her, and she looked at me like, I don't know why Bill brought you here. And I looked at her like, I don't want to be here either. Yeah. But he was so smart. And he trusted me so much. What he did to break it, he would tell her, honey, tell Carlton about that pineapple upside down cake you make and what you put in it. And she, uh -huh. looked at it she said, well, yeah, I'm kind of good. I put a little sugar and then I put a little. Then she tell me, tell me, tell, um, tell um, uh, Violet about you spending four days on a bus living in a housing project with 90 on a two bedroom. And I said, yeah, well, we did. And you know, <laughs> I just, you know, it is what it is. It's just a different world and all that. And um, and I thought if I can get through this one breakfast, I'd be good. And so we, it was still cold. But the last thing she said before it was time for him and I to go to the studio, mm -hmm. she said, well, she never said she liked me then. She said, well, Bill seems to like you. <laughs> <laughs> And so you don't have a family, so we expect you here tomorrow for breakfast again and be on time. <laughs> but you would have thought I would have been happy, but I wasn't. I was like, I don't want to come back to this joint. I want to go where I can, <laughs> you know what I mean? Do my swag. Yeah. <laughs> but I did. I came back. Yeah. And today we got closer and closer. And she told me she never had a black man in her house before. Mm -hmm. I, told her I never had sit at a table with some white lady with money and all that. Mm -hmm. And we just, before long, she became almost closer than he and I. She sent money to my mother. She helped me move my mother out to project. Mm -hmm. she, I went to the Super Bowl with Mr. Hannah. She fought that I get in the movies mm -hmm. that I did with him. She made sure I went to Cal Arts to learn about animation. Nice would read with me at the breakfast table. We became really, really great friends. Mm -hmm. And from there, I became Mr. Hanna's personal assistant. And everywhere he went, whatever he did, I was with him. There's nobody on this planet. This guy right here in Brooklyn, New York, by way of Orange, New Jersey, there's nobody on this planet that spent the last 30 years of Mr. Hanna and Mr. Barbera's life than me. I was with them, obviously, when they were alive, but I also was holding their hand when they died, both of them. Not together, obviously, but both of them. And uh, it's, it's really something that changed my life. I mean, it's, you know, uh, life has really been good. And now it's all about helping the youth, especially yeah. the youth of color, you know, because it's a different world and I can relate. And, um, and so it's you know, it's about Mr. Mr. Barbera. That's a whole nother story. How how he and I got close. Mm -hmm. But he always says something that I always thought about. And forgive my language, but I have to go there. He said, "If all you do is go to the bathroom and crap, have sex, eat food, and go to work and make money and go home, and one day you die, you will waste your space." Mm -hmm. Nobody benefited from you being here. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with your time to benefit somebody else? Because any success you had is not just because of you. Somebody else had something to do with it. Right. So what are you doing to help somebody else? And I always kept that. Yeah. Tell tell us how you got close to it, Mr. Barbera. Well, <laughs> after, <laughs> um, 
Mr. Hannah and I became close. The other thing that I have to, you know, uh, remember to mention is that I, when I growing up back east, I also DJ, and so when I came out here, I brought records and stuff with me. So at night, I, um, you know, I had when you grow up in New York, you gotta hustle. Mm -hmm. You know, ain't nothing coming free. So I would DJ at night out here and still be at the club, I mean, at the uh, studio in the daytime. Mm -hmm. So anyway, after getting close with Mr. Hannah for, ooh, probably been about a year and a half by then, my reputation started to grow. Everybody kept saying, who's the black kid? Who's the kid that, you know, because I started doing the um, the events on, at, on the studio lot and all that. Mm -hmm. and so Mr. Barbera, I don't want he was envious, let's use that word. And he says, um, I want the black kid to work and help me out too. So they went to Mr. Barbera and says, Mr. Barbera, you can we'll hire whoever you want. You can have whoever you want. He says, No, I keep hearing about the kid that Bill, that's what you call Mr. Hannah, that Bill has. I want so the studio came to me and said, Carl, he said, Well, he said, You're in a good situation. I said, Well, yeah. well you come and you become really popular and um Mrs. and Mr. Hannah, you know how much they love you. Well, Mr. Barbera is a little envious, and mm -hmm. he wants you to spend a little time with him. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lady named Sarah Basie, who was the head of publicity, she was the one who actually introduced me. She brought me to Mr. Barbera and says, this is Carlton, and when we talked, and this and that, and, and that, and that. You know what? I'm going to tell the truth. This is a story that I, I should really kind of go into. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> One time I saw, you know, the first time I saw Mr. Barbera, he was with some friends and they were, you know, uh, cracking jokes or whatever. He thought I might have heard a certain joke that I didn't hear. Mm -hmm. And he was looking for me. Mm -hmm. So he was asking people around the studio, where's the black kid at? Mm -hmm. The new kid that they hired. Mm -hmm. That's how I met him. And so he uh, went looking around, everybody, and I never forget, I thought I was going to, I said, oh boy, this ain't going good. So mm -hmm. he came and he found me in my cubicle and he said, so you're the new kid? And I said, yeah. He says, well, I saw you out there when we were talking. He said, you didn't hear, what, what did you hear? I said, well, I said, I don't hear nothing, man. I said, I just, I'm honored to be here and all that. He says, where are you from? I said, I'm from Brooklyn. He said, Really, I'm from Brooklyn. I said, really? <laughs> so we started talking about New York and all that. He said, so you, he said, well, you don't hear nothing and don't see anything, do you? I said, I'm from Brooklyn like you. And that's how we started. And then later, Sarah reintroduced us. We got close. And then my schedule was the first half of the day, I was with Mr. Hannah. Mm -hmm. Second half of the day, I was with Mr. Barbera. And being and they were night and day, but being Mr. Barbera was, it just it blew me away because Mr. Hannah, he was like my my real grandfather feeling. Him and his wife just welcomed me in their home. But Mr. Barbera, the second day I met met him, he took me to meet Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, and then after that we went to Harry Belafonte, and then he knew was tight with Scatman Crothers. And then we were Ernest Borden, and then Jacques Abor at his house. So it was like a whole level of Hollywood that I was like, whoa. <laughs> and, you know, it just it blew me away. I mean, I took the Charlton, 
Heston's uh, funeral and all that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, um, me and him, we were tight. And we had funny jokes. Like one time, everybody loves this. I told him, oh, by the way, I I um, emceed his whole funeral on the Warner Brothers lot. He had in his will. He wanted me, Mr. Barbera wanted me to emcee the whole thing. With all of them, Jack Nicholson, all of them, you know what I mean? And I got footage of that, too. Mm -hmm. I hope you get to see that when you can. But uh, anyway, he was uh, he was amazing. We had just one situation where I was out DJing and I met this girl. And so, you know, me and the girl was talking and I told her, yeah, I work for um, Hannah Barbera, for Joe Barbera, whatever. I gave her my card, whatever. And later on, she lost my card. So she called Hannah Barbera and said, uh, can I have Joe Barbera's office? And so Mr. Barbera never picks up the phone. He had two secretaries, but this day they wasn't around. He picked up the phone and says, hello. And the girl says, hi, can I speak to Carlton? She says, oh, yeah. He says, Carlton, my assistant. She said, your assistant? He ain't the head of black animation? <laughs> and he said, he said, what? <laughs> he said, he told me he's the head of the whole black animation. <laughs> he never let me off the hook for that. He said, Carlton, to be, come here. You told this girl you the head of, and she believed that? <laughs> and so, and so then, had, then about a, a week later, it was the anniversary of, we have this thing called the shaky machine. And what that is, is for, to teach kids about how to go under the table during the earthquake. Mm -hmm. and, all that. and so I introduced him at this event. But when he grabbed the mic, he said, I, I want to thank my head of black animation. I just said, you, you messing with me. But uh, we, we had, oh man, so many good times. He was, he was smooth, man. <laughs> Mr. B was smooth. Yeah. But Mr. Hannah, none of this would have happened. You know? yeah, that's my man. Yeah. You mentioned the celebrities. Uh, I know you said, um, before that you got some type of advice from uh, Scatman Scruthers? Oh, man. Scatman was the man. And, you know, who those who don't know him, if there's some new generation cats, um, he was in a sitcom called Chico and the Man in the 70s. He also was in The Shining with Jack Nicholson, and he was in Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. But the connection with Hannibal Barbera, he was the voice of Hong Kong Fui. And so he would come in the studio and he was bow-legged, bald-headed, and had swag. He had that New Orleans swag. And he would come in and uh, he would see me as a young kid, a uh, black kid. And he would come over, right? And he was the man. All the white boys used to kiss his toes. And he, <laughs> he would see me and he would say, young man. I said, yeah, come in. And I come over and he said, now you tell me the truth right in front of all of them. And them white boys treating you right. And I go, whoa. And, uh, and a couple of them, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, I dealt with some stuff. So I, but I said, yeah, Mr. Everything is good. I'm happy to be in. He said, don't lie to me, boy. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you again, are those white boys, these white boys treating you okay? And I said, <laughs> Mr. Scarlett, I, I can't tell you, I appreciate that, but I'm good. And he said, listen to me. And then somebody else was at me, he said, hold on for a minute. <laughs> and he go, he said, you gotta be twice as good as these white boys. 
because you, I've been coming here a long time. You're the first one I've seen. You got to be quite, twice as good. Don't get too comfortable. Be twice as good as them because you got to open the door for some more. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I never forgot that. And whenever he saw me, he always made sure he acknowledged me and he kept it 100. You know, I used to see, you know, Quincy Jones once in a while. Mm-hmm. And I would see uh, Harry Belafonte was close with Mr. B. He would come in and those guys always, you know, would just kind of give me that, you know, keep going with it, you know, that kind of thing. And Michael Jackson just wanted to know about where I grew up and mm-hmm. what I liked as a kid. And, but, um, you know, but Scatman was amazing, man. Amazing, strong black man that knew about the history of what we've been through as a people. And the thing I really loved about him that he knew he was good friends with Louis Armstrong, who was I was a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> what about the advice you got from Whoopi Goldberg? Well, Whoopi, uh, you know, she we were just talking about New York and music and the arts and that kind of stuff. And she just said, brother, I'm glad to see a young brother here doing his thing. She was just kind. You know, we we drove together. She was at the uh, St. Regis, I think, hotel. And so I gave her a ride from the studio back to the hotel. We had a nice little chat. We vibed pretty nice. She was she was cool. She asked a lot of questions about my mother and stuff. She kept it a hundred. And she was like, you know, I never, I never, I never forget. I was nervous. I said, you know what? My mother would love if we take a picture together. And she said, yeah, absolutely. And we took a nice photo. Mm-hmm. And my mother back in the project, she, you know how black mothers are. Oh, my baby made it big. <laughs> so it made her, and that made me happy when moms were shining. You know, it was a lot going on, man. It, those were, you know. Those were good days. And then that morning, I'm back with Mr. Hannah. Yeah. And on the weekends with Mr. Hannah on his boat. Mm-hmm. No marriage, no kids, no, everything was poured in and that so I could send money home. Yeah. So, you know, it was about sacrifice. You only get out of stuff what you put into it. You yeah. can't just keep withdrawing from life. You got to make some deposits. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... How did you get the name Zap and then go into why you had to legally change your name to Zap? <laughs> so start well, with about it. Well, everybody thinks that Zap either came from animation or basketball or DJing. And it really didn't. There was a a, a, a guy, well, he was a drug dealer <laughs> in the housing project. And one of my best friends, brother of him, and this guy was really tight. And I must have been about, I think I was nine or 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, the phone rang, they told me to get it. And it was a girl on the phone. And I was using all these big words. I was always a little advanced in my age. And I, always, I was using all these big words and kind of macking her down. And uh, they, I didn't know they heard me. They heard me and they creeped in quietly. And they looked at this little boy running all this game on this girl. And they laughed. I thought they were going to kick my tail, to be honest. But they said, ah, you zippity zap. Look at he zapped up that little zapper or something. And then when I start playing basketball, when I would make a shot, the crowd would go zap. And I said, ooh, interesting. <laughs> and then from then it could start growing. And then as I start DJing for big events and all that, people start 
sending me checks with Zap on it instead of my original name, which is, you know, my government name, which is Carlton Clay. Uh -huh. And so um, I couldn't cash him and I, I had to trace, track people down and get it. And so I went and I had my name legally changed to Zap. And that's how that came about. <laughs> uh, so you yeah. get money. Get that cheese, yeah. <laughs> no doubt, you had to definitely get that cheese, you, you know, without a doubt. But, um, you know, the animation, we're not knowing anything about it. And now to, you know, kind of be respected and, you know, and, and, and be asked to speak at Comic-Con and, mm -hmm. you know, and people call me from trivia all the time. What year was Pebbles born? Or did Bam Bam this? And, you know, you, it, so it, it's kind of something being a guy that came out here on a bus and, yes. uh, you know, and it's, it's I, I, it blows me away when I stop and I think about it and, you know, and mm -hmm. what it's done for my family back East, everybody in my family is doing well. And um, it's it really put me in a financial situation where during the pandemic, because Mr. Hanna was big on living within your means. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, a rainy day is going to really come and it's going to be rough. And you got to prepare for it now. Later for your friends. Live within your means. So his advice that he gave me from his experience during the Great Depression had helped me prepare for to be financially sound during the pandemic. That's basically where I was going with that. So what what got you into collecting glasses? <laughs> now I know you're gonna go there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know you was gonna take it there. Glasses. What happened is when I used to DJ in New York, um, it was way more competitive. LA's laid back, and this is like you know back in the eighties when you DJing back east, um, back then it was competitive, and people were right on your face waiting for you almost to make a mistake. You had to really be on your game, mm -hmm. and I needed something to have like a a symbol, a fence between me and the people. Mm -hmm. And so glasses was my comfort zone. I, the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure I had that one. So if I looked like I was confused, they couldn't see it. <laughs> and so it was my little fence. And then after that, I was getting compliments because I was good at picking out different frames. People used to say, oh, that look, you look nice in those. And, and I would hear that. And then I started collecting. And then when I would travel, when I you know, even went Hanna-Barbera, I went to... Manila, I went to Japan, I went to Taipei, and I would just buy glasses wherever I go. And so now a lot of my friends are asking me to start an online business because I got so many and they are collectors and all that. But that it came from that a little bit. And so I've, uh, it's a expensive habit, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it's worked out really, really well. Yes. But, but Mr. Hanna and Mr. Barbera, they, what we did for each other, I'll say, because they did a lot for me, but Mr. Barbera really wanted to know, they wanted to know why the kids wear the pants off their ears. Why do they, what's the tattoo phrase, you know? I remember one time I went with Mr. Barbera, we went to uh, Larry King mm -hmm. and it was an interview. And so um, we're in the interview. We're sitting in the in the green room. Wesley Snipes is in the green room too. Oh yeah. <laughs> and we're sitting there, 
And so the lady comes out and says, Mr. Barber, she says, yes. He says, we running a little over with our guests. Can we get you water or anything? We'll be done shortly. He says, no, I'm fine. She goes back in her room. Wesley Snipes says to, says, Barbara, Scooby-Doo, Flintstones, McGilla, Top Cat. Mr. Barbara said, yes. He, Wesley says, you the man. <laughs> Barbara said, excuse me? He said, you the man. He said, then he looked at me. He said, were you telling me he's the man? And so I could tell him he didn't really know what was, he didn't really accept that right. So then the lady came out and said, we're ready for you, Mr. Barbara. So he goes in, does mm -hmm. an interview, and he comes out. looks like he wasn't feeling good. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, yeah, I'm okay now. It was quiet, more quiet than usual. We get in the elevator, we go down, security takes us to it. Yeah, now I'm okay. Mm -hmm. and then we drive, he says, pull over. And I thought he had to throw up or something, pull over to the side. He said, I'm apologizing to you for what I did with Snipes. I said, what are you talking about? I said, what did you do? He says, well, Snipes kept saying, I'm the man, and I know the man's been holding you black guys back for years. I said, that don't mean that. He said, oh, you full of crap. Yes, it does. I always heard the man is holding you back. Snipes says, I'm the man. You got to be embarrassed. I said, no, no, no. I said, when somebody, slang is different than when somebody say you the man, that's a compliment. He says, no, Carl, don't, don't BS me. I said, I'm not. You got, I'm telling you, you got this wrong. So on the way, so I get to start the car back. We get to the studio, Ron, the black dude, security guy comes over, because he escorts us into the building. And I said, Ron, he said, yeah, what's up? What's up, Z? I said, if I tell you you the man, what does that mean? He says, oh, I am the man. I run things. You know that, baby boy. I said, well, somebody told Mr. B he's the man. He said, Mr. B is the man. That's Ain't nobody in animation could see him and all that. And I look, I said, so then we see Julian Chaney, who I want you to, if you get a chance to interview, I love Julian. Mm -hmm. Come here, Julian's a little playing boy. Yeah, what's up, Carlton? <laughs> I said, uh, Julian, somebody told Mr. B he's the man, and he thinks that, it, he said, oh, no. So, uh, so when we get in the elevator, Mr. B gets in the elevator and says, I guess I was the man, huh, Carl? And so every since then, he would tell a story to Ernest Borden and some of his friends from a different generation. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt like I was able to make sure they were up to date. Yeah. With, you know, what the, and they taught me so much about traditional animation, and they brought me in a room that not just African Americans, but nobody else would be in a certain room. Rex Harrison. All that, and some of the people I didn't even know who they were at that time, but they just, and then as their health started to fade, their wives wouldn't let them do anything unless I was there with them because I spent more time with them over those years like that. So it's something, and you know, they, and Emo Takamoto, I gotta bring him up too. I'd be, be missed mm -hmm. if I didn't bring up Emo Takamoto, who was a Japanese, he was in internment camps and all that. He, he came up with Scooby-Doo and all that. And to be honest, I love Mr. Hannah and Mr. Barbera all my heart and soul, but Ewo did a lot of things that he didn't quite get credit for. Mm -hmm. And um, what I loved about him the most, when we talk about racism and stuff, he really had an interesting perspective of what he'd been through, whether it was the internment camps or when he worked at Disney before Hannah-Barbera. And uh, he was amazing. He and his wife treated me like gold. 
And um, for me not to mention him would be disingenuous to say the least. Yeah. You taught them about various aspects of like of black culture, you know, the pansagging gang culture. Um, why was that important to you and how how did you kind of grow them as people? Well, it was important to me because it wasn't just black culture, it was youth culture. Mm-hmm. And um, and what was important to me is that they, you know, I got so close with them that they wanted to go places with me on my off time. Mm-hmm. And so for them to be around any of my friends, they had to have a little more swag than what they had. They couldn't say certain things that would make me look bad from a different era. Yeah. I had to kind of polish them up. And yeah. so and they polished me up on the other side. I mean, it wasn't just one side there. But um, so, you know, like I would teach them the handshakes and all that. And if somebody was smoking weed around, they, that they could be able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Or one of my boys ran into me one time and used the N-word or something that they would throw them real crazy. And they had to understand that you can never use that, but that is for that. You know, it's just certain things because unlike other people that work there, other people work there from nine to five. These guys had me around on the weekends and with their wives and with their families. So, and and they want, you know, Mr. Hannah in particular would want to go with me. So why can't I go over your buddies? And I go, whoa. And I tell my buddy, well, Mr. Hannah's coming through. And some of them would get nervous. Like one guy, Jeff Collins, who works at the studio, at Warner Brothers now. He would, uh, one time I brought Mr. Hannah over to his house. And he got all this good china out, all this stuff to make. And he said, oh, well, I'm going to make some nice food for Mr. Hannah. And he came in there, Mr. Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> he was fast asleep. He didn't care nothing about that stuff. I mean, you know. Oh, listen, here's a story. Well, oh, man, there's so many stories, though. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, one time I was at the, oh, boy, this is going to get me in trouble. Well, one time I was at the airport, mm-hmm. and um, I was to pick up Mr. Hannah, and Spike Lee was at the airport. And this particular time, um, uh, 40 Acres in the Mule was Spike Lee's company. Um, he had a, uh, I had a good friend that worked for him mm-hmm. named Pink. And to get to the point, I didn't know Spike that well. So I just, while I was waiting for Mr. Hannah, I said, what's up, Spike? He just looked. I said, Nate Bellamy, that's my man. Oh, Nate, the state, yeah. I said, yeah, I'm you Zap that work for Hannah Barbera, right? Said, yeah, he said, oh, man. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm picking up Mr. Hannah now. He said, oh, one of their sons? He said, no, the founder. He said, you guys got to be dead, man. Get out of here. I said, nah, I ain't dead, my man. He said, if he comes in before you go out, I'll, I'll introduce you. So we're talking about sports, and we're talking about a tailor, a girl that worked for him that I knew, too. We were small talking. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the flight comes in Delta. Flight's on so from Atlanta. Because um, at then, that was our parent company, Turner. So anyway, Mr. Hannah's flight comes in. I go, grab his bag. Say, how was your flight? Okay, so are you tired? No, why you ask? I said, I got a friend that just wants to say hello, if that's okay. And he said, sure. The flight comes over. Says, uh, Mr. Hannah said, yeah, he says, I was a big fan of Huckleberry Hound. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, all oh, my darling and all, I loved all that. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's great. So we do a little talking. And the spice goes to sit down. So Mr. Hannah, we start to walk, take about three steps. Mr. Hannah stops and says, Carlton, you know what? He said, well, I like your little buddy. Maybe we can find him some work in the warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea 
whose mic was. I was saying, I was so glad he didn't say it in front of his mic. But and but then and so I said, I said, whoa. And so when um and then I just said, wow, that's interesting. So when I got to the studio, I you know David Kirsten, I told who I love too, who's been great to me. I told and his family, I told the pre, he was the president. I said, you know what happened when I think of the band? I told Spike Man, he laughed. He said, Carl, did you ever go and tell Bill who Spike was? No, you know he, you got to let him know. So yeah. I went to him, Mr. Henry said, yeah. I said, you know the guy you met? Yeah, the little fella. I said, well, <laughs> I said, well, that fella ain't that little. I said, he's uh, he's a producer. He's working on a Malcolm X movie and a couple others. And I said, um, he's doing really well. I said that he. He said, well, all I know, if that little fellow's a good friend of yours, I'd do whatever I could to help him out. And I said, boy, that was Mr. Andy. He was, he was one of my buddies. He was down to look out for him. But you know, that's how he was in a nutshell, you know? He's just, just great memories, man. Great, you know, great, 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 great memories, you know? And, um, and you know, to be with both of them when they, said goodbye on this planet and to, um, you know, uh, Mr. You know, Barbara, you know, all the fancy meals and all that stuff. We used to just, you know, his wife, she had one of the tables in their house that goes from here way down there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the butlers and the disc Carlton, that's the wrong glass and all this stuff. Uh -huh. And we just say, this is a long way from the project for <laughs> It's, you know, and I sit back and I, I reminisce now and I think about it and I just go, you know, it, it's it's crazy. And, you know, I'm still so involved. I'm still, um, you know, uh, you know, being financially blessed uh, through the through the estate, and um, it's the relationship that I built and the opportunity that I had to to enhance our youth. Yeah. I don't talk about that a lot, but I just got an award mm -hmm. for um, uh, being involved with the homeless kids, and they chose me, and that really touched my uh, touched my heart that they could pick whoever they want, and they chose me. And there are people who did more financially, but I think the reason why they chose me because I grew up like they're growing up right now, and I could relate to certain things, and I could tell them how to avoid getting into situations. And it's really important now because when you look at gun violence, look at the internet, mm -hmm. what these kids today have to deal with is way more than even what we dealt with growing up. So, you know, it's about giving, it's about positioning. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your nonprofit back home? Oh yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, my nonprofit back home was actually, uh, uh, was created by my mom. Mm -hmm. And my mom, you know, after, you know, we grew, my, my brother and sisters grew up, she started something called the Safe Haven. And the Safe Haven was uh, created in the basement of Bethel Baptist Church. And what they would do, what she would do, is she would get any volunteer funds she could, and she would take the kids and help them with their homework, help them with food, help with clothes, help them to learn how to conduct themselves, how the girls could be little ladies, not little Gucci's, so how the dudes could be not little gangsters, but be little gentlemen, 
and be cool with it, though. Not be corny, have a little swag, but still, and mm -hmm. she would help them. And now you see some of them that are going to college and that, this and that, and to be, to keep it 100 with you, um, Mr. Uh, Miss, mostly the wives had got involved in uh, David Kirshner, who was, uh, was the person who were really good friends with. Uh, you know, he created Charles Play with Chucky the Doll and mm -hmm. Piper and One Upon the Forest and all that. That's my man right there. He's the guy, when I first came out here, he was the guy that um, I would have Thanksgiving at his house every year in Hancock Park. He, he almost made me. He, <laughs> I didn't want to go. He used to say, no, you can't just be by yourself in Hollywood Boulevard. And you got to come. And I said, no. And, he, and so he... But anyway, they helped financially um, support my mom's charity that I've been big involved with. And we send kids to college. We do a big Christmas party every year. We have different scholarships. And um, that's one of the main things I do, uh, I do back there. And I support other charities, but that's the main. My mother's baby is what we really keep rocking. And it's in her name. So, you know, Alma D. Clay. <laughs> yeah. So, how was it to exist in like two different worlds—the animation world and then the music world—like simultaneously? It was really interesting. I, you know, that's an interesting question because you know there would be times when I would be out. There was a place called the um, oh man, it was the um, what was the name of the place that I used to be? It was on Crescent Heights and uh in in sunset but anyway i would be there djing and uh, and and i mean these are people you probably don't remember but jane kennedy was hot then yeah. isaac kennedy all of them that was the scene back then you know jj walker and all of them that was the scene and they would uh and i had all east coast music and they loved me because i used to break all the songs DJs out here hated me though, because they was like, ah, they were still playing, you know, some other stuff. But anyway, um, I would do that, and then I'd have to be at Mrs. Hannah's that morning. Yeah. And she and and the housekeeper would say, I smell them funny cigarettes, because it'd be all over my clothes, and you know, and so it would be something how I have to. I, you couldn't be late at Mrs. Hannah's. And sometimes at the DJing at the clubs. Even though um, they would close at two, they would kick everybody out, and then they let the VIPs stay in after that. Mm -hmm. and, and I was used to that because in New York we don't close at two anyway, so it was natural for me. But but I still had to be at their house at um, at eight forty five um, uh, uh, the next morning at the Hannah's. So it was two different worlds, but it helped me because it built relationships, especially now. When I go out, I go to any. I can go to the most. I can go to the most gangster um, thing that you can imagine, mm -hmm. and uh, and people know who I am, and I'm well received. And I can go to the most goofiest animation thing that's popping, and they go, "Carlton, I know you." And so you you know you kind of it's to be accepted in both of those worlds. It's uh, it it's really something. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's important for my personality type because if I was only accepted in the hip hop world and in the music world, it's just certain I can have assumptions and and views 
But it's something about sticking your foot in the door and really being accepted in some other areas where you can learn um, uh, from your experience and opposed to somebody else's version of that. Yeah. And so, you know, you it, it really is important. And, and, and animation as a kid, I never thought that would be something that I would be thrust into. And um, I find myself now, you know, teaching kids the basics of animation, tradition, mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, when I look at, you know, Gordon Hunt, Chris Zimmerman, and, and uh, you know, I, you know, Tex, uh, you know, I was uh, Tex Avery. Mm -hmm. You know, these are guys that were, you know, you know, and uh, you know, taking Mr. Barber to his funeral and Art Scott, and um, you know, you you see, you know, it's just, you know, so many people that you just because of my association with them, mm -hmm. you get connected with. You know, I remember staring at Michael Jackson's nose one time in his office because. He had makeup because something was going on there. And I was looking at Lou and Mr. Barbera, I never forget, he elbowed me and said, um, he, he said, don't look at Jackson like that, Colin. Don't look at Jackson. Because I was like, damn. And Mr. Barbera was right because I didn't even check myself. I was just like, you know. But you know, being at the line, even though some of the, 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 the white artists that was there, it was Jonathan Winters mm -hmm. or um, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, and you know, you would see these cats. Can you hear me? I said, I get no respect. You're right, right. I get no respect. And he never called my name right. Clay, come here, Clay. Clay, you like white things, Clay? And I say, No, I'm good. <laughs> he was the character. And Rodney Dangerfield was a he fused physical comedy, which is the hard kind. He'll pump his head against the wall and fall mm -hmm. out. I go, man, you working hard for a joke, man. <laughs> you got to see all these different guys, you know? And um, it, um, it, you know, it really, really, really something when I think about the whole experience, the whole ride, you know? You talk about how you got into DJing? Oh, I got into DJing really young. I just would just, I would just would take stereo. We would go, me and my friend Shane Wells would go to different cities where white people live and go through their trash and bring, because they, they throw good stuff away. They'll throw a bike away with a flat. We'd be like, oh, you kidding me? We'd go get a patch, put it on. Mm -hmm. and, and even TVs back then, we'd just say, oh, that just needs a tube. And yeah. so we would get little stereos out of the trash. And I got two stereos with turntables, and I would go back and forth. And, you know, anything you do really with repetition, if you focus, you'll get better at it. And I started getting good at making tapes, and people start liking it. And then I started doing, um, I start doing uh, stuff in the basement, um, uh, project parties in the basement, and doing stuff all over. And everybody kept saying I was good and all that. And then I started doing high school parties. Then my mother hooked me up with doing some Italian parties. For, and uh, before you know it, I was like the man. And so I started collecting different music and people was, and then these girls wanted to be my, um, they start putting their names on, putting Zap on their shirt. They wanted to be my fan club. And my ego just went through the roof then. I was like, oh, y'all kidding? And so that's how it blossomed out. And then when I came to LA, I had to start doing nightclubs at night. And now I'm real selective. It's just, you know, but 
you know, but both of my locations out here, I got full DJ setup and all that. It's gonna always be with me. And yeah. I think I put it. I wish I could find it with Mr. Barbera scratching Yabba Dabba Dude. I gotta find where that is. But he said, and then I was trying to show him, and he hit my hand and said, I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. Because, you know, I used to. Church, uh... Oh, that's nice. Church. Oh, that is hot. Yeah, I got it from like Lamert Park. <laughs> Did you? Like when it, you know, when they do the stuff on Sundays or whatever. Yeah. I bought it from some guy. Oh, I got to find out about. Yeah, that's nice. My sister would go nuts. Yeah, yeah, that's that's bananas. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, I just like to say this, and I know this ain't what we talk about here, but, mm -hmm. I, but I'm a, I'm gonna take it here. I'm proud of you to see a beautiful black woman in an animation field at this particular time doing what you're doing and dealing with what you have to deal with to be mm -hmm. successful and to find time to have a podcast, you know, where people take advantage of it and not it's on them. But for right. you to give them an avenue to get introduced to people like me who mm -hmm. had no traditional uh, training, who just like a lot of people out there trying to find a way to make some legal money and find his way to make his life better. You yeah. know, I salute you for that, sis. That's real talk. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, like, what do you like about the animation industry and then about the music industry? Um, what I like about the, oh, well, that's a really tough question. What I like about the animation industry is that um, your imagination could really take you where you want it to take you. Mm -hmm. You, um, like, live action, you really got to deal with egos and you got to deal with um, personalities. You have to deal with the animation, but it's a whole nother level with live action. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you, and so I like what you could dream and you, your creation animation-wise could go wherever your mind and your thought process will take it. You know, I mean, it's just, you can, you know, your dream could just come to fruition. And mm -hmm. I think you have an opportunity to help entertain and impact adolescents, not just the youth, but real young kids. Yeah. I think was, I think with Adult Swim and what we did with the Cartoon Network, we, we, we cater a lot to the adults. But I think we really have an opportunity to really, when I think of Felix the Cat and mm -hmm. Cat the Friendly Ghost and uh, Mighty Mouse, and you know, you just certain shows that I remember now, Gigantor, that really had an impact on me. And I think that we still need to take advantage of that. Those are things I like. Um, the things I don't like is that technology has gone so far that it's separating people. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of times people are not in the same room. It's something about being in the same room. It's not about just energy. It's about synergy. Yeah. It's about being in sync. And so those are the things I don't like. But the music business, um, I... Um, I have problems with the music business, particularly the direction of hip hop now. Mm -hmm. I think that um, we've always had balance. And I know I'm talking like an old head, and that's okay. But I, I liked it that we had balance before. We had the NWA's number, we also had Rimmer, we had the Red Smiths over here, we had the Lauren Hills. You mm -hmm. had, now you just, with the gun violence and what's happening, I, it's no way that I don't believe that there's a direct correlation between some of that and what's happening on the street. 
And um, you, I just saw like today, a 12 and 13 year old in New York uh, rappers killed each other. Mm. And so you just, you just want to kind of be able to find a, a little more balance, not to eliminate, because that story needs to be told too. But when one story tells the whole story, it's a problem. Yeah. And I just want to be able to talk beautifully about our black women. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to talk beautifully about the family structure. Mm -hmm. I want to talk beautifully about the history of what we've been through and the people. We talk about, you know, um, the, uh, the learning theory or whatever they're talking about, putting it in your schools. It's not stopping us from putting it in our own music into our youth now. So, I, you know, I, I have problems where we're at musically right now, to be honest. So, you had told me uh, the Flintstones was supposed to be black at first. Well, you know, it was interesting. Me and Mr. Barbera was having this conversation this day, a particular day. We were watching a program, I think it was Black History Month, and he said to me, he says, Carlton, he says, I know you must catch a lot of flack from your friends about us, but we really did try to do a lot of black stuff. And I said, like what? And so he says, well, you know, we, we uh, did the Globetrotters and mm -hmm. I used to go, I used to go to the forum and interview those guys. And he says, I'll tell you something. We were going to do the Flintstones. Think about it. Those were cavemen. Mm -hmm. We were going to be, they were called the Blackstones. Yeah. I even have the art. I should, I should have brought it in here. Um, he gave me the artwork, mm -hmm. the original artwork. And they were cave, big lips and with, with uh, you know, big bats over their shoulders. And he says, yeah, we're going to be called um, the Blackstones. And we start doing the drawings and we start getting it together. And the NAACP and those guys, they gave us a rough time. The black community said we were making black people look bad and all that. And that's how we uh, switched up from there. He said, but that was gonna be called um, the Blackstones. And he, and he did, he gave me the, uh, the artwork for that. And I just say, wow. And you know, he shared so much. I mean, even though this had nothing to do exactly with the black thing, but even when they did Scooby-Doo, when the Scooby-Doo was first being made, I love telling this story to the youth too. Because uh -huh. the object of the story is, no matter how good you think a project is, it could be missing that one thing. So keep on, until it gets picked up, don't ever get satisfied. Continue to work on that, to yeah. cultivate it, to make it better. And when uh, Scooby-Doo was first being made, it wasn't being called Scooby-Doo. What happened is they had some, uh, some, of the, you know, some of the white animators who, who worked on some of the other stuff. They said, come up with something of yourself. And so they, um, came up with something and they called, I think it was called, I'm Scared. And what it was, you know, in the 70s, those guys and maybe late 60s, those guys was, I hate to say it, but it's true, they were LSD, the, um, the hippie movement, Woodstock and all that. So they made this show and it was psychedelic and they would come out of closets and go, and they would, and they would, and so what, what I understand is they showed it in front of groups of kids and the kids didn't respond. Mm -hmm. So they were going to throw it in the trash. Mm -hmm. Mr. Barbera said, wait a minute, before you do anything like that, let's try to throw a dog in there and see what happens. And so it was a lady at the studio that used to raise Blue Ribbon Great Danes, and Iwo Takamoto called her to his office, 
and ask her everything about the dog. And she, he drew Scooby while she was talking with the big paws. He did some things the opposite of what she said for humor. And um, he said, well, I got this dog. So the guy who was the head of the, of this, of uh, NBC at the time, Fred Silverman, mm -hmm. who by the way was at one time the head of, only guy in history that was the president of ABC, CBS, and NBC. Not the same time, but different time. Anyway, he's, uh, Mr. Barbera called him and says, look, we threw a dog in this, Fred. I think you might like it. So Fred Silverman says, let me come over to the studio and see what you guys got. Mm -hmm. He's on his way to the studio. He's listening to Frank Sinatra on his radio, a song called Strangers in the Night. Strangers in the Night. Da 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 da, Scooby Dooby Doo. That's where Scooby got his name. So he showed up. They laughed, liked what they had, mm -hmm. named him Scooby Doo. And now the money they make off of merchandise alone during the year is ridiculous. And yeah. so the point is, if they would have threw that in the trash, they wouldn't have got the hit to take it. And sometimes, even music, you make a song, maybe you need a rapper, maybe you need a singer. You know, it's just keep on you get it you perfect it and so yeah. you know it was just a lot what motown used to do they um if 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 the uh song didn't pop with one artist they would just give it to another artist <laughs> right. that's exactly right they sure did i used to read about that too yeah, yeah they, they most definitely did but you know scooby-doo was a uh a, a great example of that you know and um you know um mel blank he got in a big accident I mean, these guys were really dedicated. You know, he did the voice of uh, Bugs Bunny. He did the voice of, uh, of he, uh, he did the voice of, not of Fred Flintstone, but he did a Barney Rubble. He mm -hmm. just did so many, he was, he was amazing. Yeah. Um, and so he got in a big accident by UCLA where on at Sunset where it kind of swerves around. And uh, he was hospital wise, and then they took him home and put him in a bed and he recorded from his bed, his yeah. hospital bed, he recorded the episode. He took the mics and stuff to there. And then the guy, George O'Hanlon, who was the voice of George Jesson, he died right at our studio, recording right on the table, just, just he doing his thing. He didn't feel good, but he still came in. And boom, I'll never forget. And he put this, took a while for quarter. The cops came first. And when mm -hmm. you're already dead, they don't really take you away. The coroner got to come or something. They just put a cover over his head while he's on the mixing board. I'll never forget that. I was like, wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, the stuff you used to see like that, you just go, really? I mean, you know, you, know, you witness a, a lot of stuff in the day being there, you know? So tell us about, like, um, what you told them about, like, Bam Bam's character and story. <laughs> Well, Mr. Barbera, that was my man, obviously. It seemed like I'm talking about him more than Mr. Hanna, which is Mr. Hanna's my man, and I had reference with everything. But Mr. Barbera was a character, and he was from New York, and he had swag. So he would, uh, what happened, he was, um, I'll put it this way, because I, I could tell the original version, but what happened, he'd be in a meeting, and he'd, uh, every, and everybody, he'd be with the executives from, from Kellogg, from uh, NBC, from Goodyear, you know, sponsors. And they would, Mr. Barbera, they, when they kiss his tail a little too much, he don't like it. And they was kissing his tail, saying, we liked everything. 
And then he would say, somebody get Carl. And then, and I love when he's in the meet because that way I don't have to be with I could go have a sandwich, do whatever I want. And they beat me back then. It was beepers. He beat me. Look, Mr. Barbera wants to see you. Really? He went to meetings over already? No, he wants you to come in to me. And here I am, a black dude walking into me. And I go, yeah, Mr. Barbera, everything already. He said, call him. Sit down. I can sit down. He said, and he used to call him son of a beast. He said, tell these son of a um, something that you didn't like. These guys are telling me how great. Tell me, this is the kind of stuff, guys. He said, call, tell me what you didn't like about stuff we did. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, I know what you're talking about. I said, look, I said, I just told Mr. Barbera one day that they blew a good opportunity. I grew up in a housing project. Mm -hmm. And one of the characters we were able to relate to was Bam Bam. Because mm -hmm. he was tough, he was rough, protected family, worked out, bam, bam, pick up his father. And so <laughs> you, I thought that they had a great opportunity. They had a great opportunity to sponsor workout equipment, to relate to the prison population, to really talk to the boys that are dealing with anger issues. It was a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. But then when Bam Bam got older, he's like, gee, Pebbles, when we going to the beach? Y'all took all the street, all the hood out of him. <laughs> now he just, you let that go, you let him grow up wrong. Right. Yeah, and Mr. Barbera loved it. He says, tell him, Carl, tell him. <laughs> They said, okay, you can go. And uh, I then, you know, and so that was it. You know, he would ask me questions like that. What what didn't we like and all that kind of stuff. And how he uh, he doesn't want to say something that's being disrespectful mm -hmm. and, you know, to help him. Because he is, you know, he see women, he said, look at that dame over there, Carl. Oh, my God. And, you know, he just, he was from a different, you know, Mr. Hannah too. Mr. Hannah didn't know how to say helpless. He said, Carlton, tomorrow we're going to give money to that beggar over there. You know, and he used different language. And, but, I, but the same thing to me, and I said, what's good? And, you know, for them, they was, you know, my talk was different than what they were. You know what I mean? What's cracking like it, Mr. B? You know what I mean? I mean, it, it was on both sides, you know? Yeah. But low-key, the part about um the like how he liked you being real that's how i like um that's how i relate to like important people or higher ups when i at different jobs like a lot of people are intimidated by them or like kiss their buttons and, and some people like that but some people it's just like oh like it's just annoying because and i've experienced that before where i got a title and then all of a sudden people start treating me different i'm like i didn't i didn't start acting different y'all just try to start treating me different because of this title and so, like, I've whether I've interviewed veterans who've been like people have been scared to visit them, and he, and they're like, I'm just a person, like, so right. people like they're just a person, um, like, not putting them on a pedestal. Some people actually like that, and they'll relate to you better, and they'll like you better. I, and that's the strategy that I've used to like relate to important people because I'll I'll just treat them like they are a human being, and they and they like me for that. Well, when you're authentic, you, you're exactly right. And you just you just hit on something. I'm glad you did because I'd be remiss. Early on, there was a guy named Cy Fisher who was an agent for Mr. Hannah and Mr. Barber. He and his wife were good to me. And early on, he was known as being very difficult. And um, just one day, in my early part of my job when I was uh, working in Stockholm, I also had to do messenger stuff sometimes. And this one day, 
Um, I, he, the, the receptionist says, you got to put this $10,000 check in the bank and you need to go and take Mr. Fisher's socks to his alteration guy. So I put the check in, a, in, the, in the, uh, at the bank and I go and I take his socks. So then the socks are ready. I go and I bring them back, right? Then I go in the break room. I hear Mr. Fisher go nuts. Who in the hell did my socks like this? I'll close this whole damn place down. This is bull. You know how I like my stuff. So then I came to the reception. I said, ooh, I did that. What did he said, no, he's blown. He always blows off steam. Just call him, believe me. Just go in, this, in the break room or go in the copy room and just get lost. He just, you know, can stay out of his way. And uh, he still was going nuts. And, you know, being from Brooklyn, I was like, nah, this motherfucker is crapping on me. And uh -huh. so I went around the other way uh, <laughs> to the corner, and I went to his office. And uh, he was sitting there. I'll never forget, he had the Wall Street Journal. He had the little half glasses. He was sitting there like that. And I said, he looked up, and I said, Mr. Fisher, I'm the guy who messed up your socks. I said, I need to know what I did so I don't mess up again. I just came out here not long ago from back east, and mm -hmm. I you know, I need to find out what I did. He said, pull up a chair. And he said, and I never forget what he said. It was the weirdest thing ever. And it it became like a story around the studio. A lot of people who see this, who's from Hannah Barbera will know this too. Uh -huh. And he said, um, I'm going, you what you don't understand. He asked me where I came from. I said, what you don't understand is I'm going to the Academy Awards and I'm gonna be sitting with, um, he mentioned Silverman. He mentioned a guy named Joe Cohen and Carl Honeystein. I remember these names. Mm -hmm. and, and Alvin Furliker. These are, I, I remember it straight as day. And we're all going to be sitting. And because I think they were nominated for something. And he says, when the camera pans down on my sock, I just want the monograms, not the whole sock. He says, because it looks like I've been putting too much time on my sock when they pan down. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I will not make it in this business. I was like, whoa. And so I said, well, thank you, sir. Well, what happened from there? He liked that I came in and asked him. So from then on, he would use me to say, the only one I trust around here to do anything is the new guy, Carl. And he, it got so bad that the little white boys, they used to run from me. They When I would go into the stock room, they used to say stuff like, Carl, honestly, I'm on break. I'll be off. I said, man, I ain't no snitch. I, you know, and they said, well, I thought he was prejudiced, man. Why is he like you? I said, he liked me because I went in there and talked to him like a real dude. Right. You know, I didn't pass around. I went, took the, I was ready to take the punch. Say, I messed up. How could I fix this? You know, I didn't dance around the edges. And they said, you know, that's crazy because he always, and he did, he always, he, he dug me. And, um, and it was just something that, you know, it, it just paid off. And everybody was like, Mr. Fisher, are you his favorite and you're black? That's <laughs> what he told me to. He said, Carl, no just so, but you black and you his favorite? <laughs> and I said, I am black. <laughs> but I don't know about favorite. I just went in and hollered at him. Right. And he let me, yeah, he dug me out. He gave me tickets to go take dates to premieres and all that. He was just from that, just from going to his office and Hearing that crap that he said. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so it goes back to what you said. You got to be your authentic self. And if yeah. you're a good person, it will resonate. 
But if you're not, that side will resonate too. And so yes. you should hide out if you're that guy that's going to do some, or, or a woman that's deceitful or that's going to steal his watch or whatever you're going to do. But if you're good, you know, your vibe is good and you get a chance to marinate, you know. But after a while, Hannibal Barrett, anybody who worked there, they'll tell you, I'm not being cocky. They'll say, we love Carl. Because mm -hmm. they know that, I, you know, we be, you know, it's, it's part of the family, you know. It's just, I earned my keep. And, uh, you know, it, you, you know, it, it's nothing but love. You know, they, you know, we, we went through a whole lot together. You watch people, family being born, the whole thing. But now it's my job to get more people in that look like me. Yeah. Um, there was something you told me once, like, uh, what, what, what advice did you learn from like Mr. Hannah and Mr. Barbaria? It was like, uh, like, don't pay attention to what people say. Well, I learned so much from them. They, um, Mr. Hannah had all kinds of sense. He used to say stuff like, um, you know, you know, be careful not to be taken advantage of. He used to say, givers gotta have limits because takers don't. He used to say, yeah, I mean, he had all these kind of just good one-liners that you just, you know, would go by. But they, um, together, they, he would tell me, you know, important to live within my means. Mm -hmm. That was important. And a lot of things are just things. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talk about that. Um, he would um, he would just be really supportive of the stuff I wanted to do. Like, if I wanted to do, and Mrs. Hannah, oh, boy. I mean, she would remind me. She said, Carlton, it's, you know, uh, Mother's Day's coming. What are you doing to send for your mother? You know, you don't, you know, she would just make sure I was on top of all that and birthdays. And, you know, I had a friend who I grew up named Shane Wells, whose birthday is actually tomorrow. And he's pastor. He had died childhood diabetes, my main man. And she used to just help me just pack boxes and stuff to send to him. You know, not just money, but blankets and clothes. And they just knew I was out here. And it, it, I felt like, particularly with the Hannahs, that their kids had grown up and moved away. And they had a need to have somebody like me that, that was younger. And I think that's when my mother did the safe haven back east, same thing. We grew up, we moved out. She needed yeah. to take care of some kids. In the yeah. neighborhood. So it was just like a perfect fit, you know? It just, timing is so important. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, it was basic things too that you would hear. You would hear that um, the real magic is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm -hmm. Most people, um, the opportunities are there, but they're not prepared. They think they're prepared, but they're not. Right. And you, you would just, you know, and certain things like that you would hear. And um, was, uh, you don't pay attention to what people say. Don't pay attention to what they do. Pay attention to that. Oh, 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 yeah. No, no, I got you. That was one of the most, thank you. That's one of the most important things Mr. Hannah told me. That mm -hmm. was really, that was really deep for, I mean, he, 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 man, that was heavy. He said, <laughs> um, no, it really was. He said, I'll never forget this. He said, don't believe what people say and don't believe what they do. And when he said that and he paused, I was confused. I said, wait a minute. Don't do what they say and what they do. He says, what you do is you judge people by pattern. Mm -hmm. Pattern will tell you everything you need to do. No. And then he gave me examples. He said, 
Say if somebody says uh, these guys are drunk, but he stopped drinking for two weeks. Well, his action is showing that he stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. But until he creates a pattern from not drinking, he's still a drunk. Mm-hmm. So you, your pattern will tell you who somebody is. When you go look for a job, they want to see where you worked at before and what you did, what kind of pattern you did. Yeah. You go to an apartment. Your pattern will tell you all you need to know about somebody, you know, because people will say your watch that don't work, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, he was, he was really big on making sure you pay attention to people. And he didn't like being in a like I'm Pattern McGee. Like when I'm dealing with people, I'll be like, "You saying something? But what you doing?" Yeah, that pattern will tell you everything you need to know. If you around somebody and they got a pattern of talking about other people, guess what? They talking about you. Ooh, I was so naive growing up, but I learned that. Like, <laughs> friends, like she would tell me her friends' business. I was like, hmm, mm. that so hurt other people, my stuff. So. yeah yeah so you know you you know a lot of that you learn and you just go wow and you know the thing that was so great i I mean from a financial standpoint you know it wasn't like i was making a ton of money but when i was with them i mean this sounds the the cheap side of me when i'm being with them you ain't spending no money (laughs) so everything you know i mean you ain't spending no money for nothing you ain't spending no money to eat you spend no money for gas nothing so all it was just a direct deposit going into there. And uh, anything I would do in terms of my family, even today, their daughters and sons been, I mean, they, uh, not just financially, but just support and just making sure you're good. And we talk, like Mr. Hannah's daughter, we talk about three times a week. I, and we, when we hug and we see each other, people think we married for her. I mean, I love her with all my heart and soul. And uh, and she loves me. And, um, you know, it's just, we've just been through so much together for yeah. so long. You know, when I lost my mother, it was the hardest thing in my life. The support that they had and to be there for me meant the world. When, um, when Mr. Hannah, when he got, he started dealing with certain levels of Alzheimer's later, Mm-hmm. He was more comfortable and recognized me, so they were comfortable knowing that he was, you know, I was spending, they had a, I had a room that I spent the night at, the, at, at her house. And, uh, you know, those are things that you, well, some things are bigger than money. It's just yeah. the time and the quality of your time, you know? It really, really, really is. You have the opportunity to really make an impact that really goes deep, you know? And when you're honored, you know what? And I say this, and I think a couple of people who see this might not understand this, but unless you're a black kid growing up like I did, you, you most people won't understand. And that is when you get into that world, you start off where people have a low expectation of you. Mm-hmm. You don't think you, and so, you know, Scatman Crothers was right. Not only do you have to be better, well, you have to believe in yourself and know not only am I good as anybody else here, I come from uh, my ancestors, my people, my mom and them, they raised me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm built for this. I'm 100% built for this and I belong. You got to tell yourself that. I feel like, you know, 
a lot of people in the animation industry sometimes um they have imposter syndrome i'm i feel like i'm one of the few people who don't i'm like i can do anything <laughs> right 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 as long as it don't require like you know i ain't gotta go to school for like medicine or something like i can do anything pretty much if you don't gotta learn a lot about it i feel like i can do it <laughs> yeah, yeah but the difference now is you know you have to continue to polish up on your computer skills yeah. And stuff, the technology and all that change. It wasn't like that back then. Always changing. Right. So not only is it always changing, but you know, the youth that are in that's going to school for animation now are learning things that might be the new wave. And you know, you know, you we deal with 5G now, what's coming down the pike. And then you look at, you know, I mean, if 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 I were younger and just getting in the game, I would be like I'm not a fan of his as, as a human being, but in terms of what he's done, uh, in terms of uh, developing stuff, and that's uh, Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like his politics. I don't even like him as a human being. But as a what he's done, innovative, I would thinking of he's I would, Henry Ford. Excuse me. Like he's today's Henry Ford, because Henry Ford said he, he he like he wasn't the smartest, but he knew how to get the smart right. people together and accomplish things. Yeah, and that's what I would be. I would be. Th- I wouldn't go way up, but I would be thinking, with the skill set that I have and what I can learn, how do I take it and patent it and do something different than everybody else? Right. And, um, and and you can get investors. You really can if you got something that you really believe in. You can find investors, but people usually don't have a good presentation. They don't really have a follow through. And they don't, they sort of believe it, but they don't 100% believe it themselves. You got to own it and say, this is, I'm a, you know, and. And that's how I tackle my YouTube channel. Like, I'll, I try to, like, even if somebody is, like, the most interviewed person, I try to ask them a question um, that they never been asked before. Like, I am so upset when I interviewed Dan Haskett. Okay. Like, what everybody saw was actually the second interview because I never pressed record on the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Like, <laughs> like when I asked him, what, well, I asked him some question. He's like, "Wow, nobody's ever asked me that." I was like, "Yes." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you, right, right, right. You know, you want to touch those parts of the brain. Yeah, you right. definitely. You know, but um, I think one of the things that'll always keep me really humble mm-hmm. that I'll go back to is knowing what it feels like to be hungry. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand that, and um, when you really um, know what it feels like, and you know how hard and how persistent, you know your mom by herself what she did, like women, boy, and um, and in particular black women, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and you know being raised by one. And someone else, no disrespect to no other race. I just don't have any experience with other races raising me. Or, but I just know that um, from a black woman's perspective, when uh, the, you know fathers are not around as much, mm-hmm. is when um, just a couple generations down, it was uh, illegal to read and write. And, and when you talk about critical race theory, even now, where you can't really even tell the whole story, and um, and you, you know, they make up words like woke and all that. And whenever I hear somebody say that, I just say you you've been on well, no, let me just. <laughs> but um, I just 
you know, uh, but just growing up with all the things that were coming up against her and still, yeah. as Maya Angelou said, still I ride. Mm-hmm. And my mom rose over it and she was able to um, to raise productive, and then- citizens that all of us are making a different and kind individuals and um, and hardworking and God loving and fearing. And it just makes me proud. I just remember how she has to sweat where some of my other, you know, just other people didn't have to go through. Yeah. yeah. Once, once she rolled, she gave back. Right. Right. <laughs> that part. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Your goal, like in life, was to get your mama house and make life, make a life in Cali. Like, how did it feel once you accomplished that? Like, how did it feel? Um, it, it's surreal, and it's you know, I try not to. Sometimes I sit back at night and I go, "Wow, did I? Did this really happen?" And certain things flash in my mind, or somebody will send me some video of me doing something I forgot about, whether at uh, Mr. Barbera's 90th birthday party when I was the MC or when somebody, you know, certain things that people, you know, um, you know, even um, David Kirshner, I was in one of them Chucky movies, he put me in. When I, I was in a amusement park with balloons and I had scared and all that stuff. And so when people send me, I just go, wow, this is really, but, uh, it just feels like it's it's a continuum. Yeah. It's, my life is always something on the table. It's never where I could just sit back and say, okay, mm-hmm. uh, everything's good now. No, yeah. things keep coming up that, you know, so it just, it's still moving forward. It's still inspiring. It's like to some, uh, in, in some respects, I feel like I'm I'm as much as the voice of the Hannibal Bird legacy as anybody else. Mm-hmm. I feel that genuinely, mm-hmm. and and you know you know just for uh, devil's sake, why would I say that? I say that because of the time I spent with them and at the studio, and how many people that were at the studio over the years still reach out. To me to find out how to get in touch with the family or to share stories or whatever or we're going to do a reunion or whatever it, it all that energy comes back mm-hmm. and you just feel like whoa you know and it just it's um i i, I read blogs sometime and it'll be nothing about me but then in the middle of the blog it'll say um i never knew that about joe you maybe you should get in touch with carl and ask him to joe like that and you just say wow you know in the middle of nowhere you know <laughs> And then you get, you know, Fred Seibert's blogs, and it just, it just like wow. And it all makes me, if God first, it just makes me really proud of my mom. It really does. It just says her sacrifices really w- was worth it. It meant something. And this, you know, to, to, you know, and I know that so many people are going through so much right now. I mean, relationships are struggling. Um, you know, the job situation where people working from home and now they want to bring people back. Mm-hmm. The schooling kids situation. People are going through the pandemic, losing lives. People are going through a whole lot. So for me to not have to 
directly go through that, even though I lost a couple people to COVID. Mm -hmm. it, um, I just feel mighty blessed. I feel really energized and blessed. And I say, how can I make somebody's life nice who um, would really appreciate it and don't expect it? That's yeah. where energy comes from the most. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say you've learned throughout your career and your life and career that will be beneficial to others? What have you learned? I think the thing that I learned the most is um, listening and hearing ain't the same thing. And I think that the more you talk, <laughs> and, 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 and the more you talk, you're not really learning much. You're sharing what you already know or repeating what you already know. Mm -hmm. And I think that as you mature, you learn, oh boy, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. But real shucks from bull shucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you really know, so you, when you learn the art of, of both listening and hearing, you have to determine that you have, and I used to talk about this a lot, everybody needs to have a delete button. <laughs> you have to have a button when you push delete and it goes for people, it goes for thoughts, mm -hmm. it goes for a lot of things. You got to be able to go, even relationships. You got to say, I got to push that button. It got to that point. Yeah. And, um, it's like a Nipsey Hussle saying, you know, it's a lot going on, but everybody can't go. Yeah. Or Juicy grew up when he can't take with him. And because uh, they're not capable, it's certain people that I love on the street that I won't take in certain circles on the animation world. And it's some animation people, without a doubt, I'm not taking down in the middle of the other side. You just, you know, and you don't mix, you know, sugar with, you know, with crap. And so, you know, you, you learn a lot though. You just, you know, you learn who to trust, who to mess with. You can't mess with anybody. And you learn that time is precious. Yeah. You use it is really precious. And, and, and it's the little things for me, it's being on time, mm -hmm. it's preparation, and it's attitude. Yeah. You know, if you really cover those toys with a little side order honesty, you, man, I mean, you got it all figured out then for the most part. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of times I'd be in the middle of the table with um, with some big, and, and I, they'd ask me something. And I stopped and I say, and, and some people I know, other people with black wouldn't do it because they don't want to feel like they're dumb. But I would. I said, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because some people just throw stuff on you and you, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. You no. Know, what is that? Because I can use that in my vocabulary and I can teach somebody else. Right. And so, you know, you've got to kind of be humble. I mean, mm -hmm. you got to promise every other word you say. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Then you gotta that's the difference. That person because like Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, then you're not you're not really smart. <laughs> that part. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And you can learn a whole lot from kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's some natural instincts that get diluted as they get older. We think you're teaching them. Some of them we're teaching their limitations, is what we do. Yeah. So, you know, it's a whole lot to get into, but you know. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you like um the other day, like uh, like my dad said that he appreciates his hood smarts more than his 
street smarts and but as as a um you know he has a phd he he teaches uh, uh he's a professor wow. and so he he does in his class he's like okay i have a a, a bachelor of science a bs degree so i can see through bullish <laughs> a master of science degree so that <laughs> i can look through more ish <laughs> i got a phd so that means like my ish is piled high and deep, so you can't throw something at me. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you do, you know what I mean? You grow up, you know, in New York on the street, you just you just you know, you observe other people and you just see, oh man, he's showing him a a, a TV in a box. He's showing him the real TV. Yeah. <laughs> you say, I got a whole box full and this sucker box in box. That one don't work. So you learn different stuff, and then you pay attention. Well, I use people. I use people thinking I'm something to my advantage because people, because of how I look or of, right. of a perception. Like when I was purchasing my car, I was on the phone with the dude, and I'm and he doing a little spiel, and I was like, like I didn't say anything, but I'm like, people actually fall for this. I can see right through this, like, <laughs> but I didn't want to like let him know that I could see through it because I felt like that just was to my benefit. And so he, you know, he was trying to do all this stuff. And at some point, you know, you you, you gotta say something. So I was like, I, I I was like, I understand that my voice is light and that I, I seem young, but if you try to take advantage of me, I will not buy this car. <laughs> like, because right. it was just getting to a point where I'm like, okay, like I will walk away. Well, I, you know, I do stuff sometimes that's a little disingenuous. Like I'll talk to somebody or something, and I'll say, I'll say, well. You know, I'll say, well, that better come on time because my wife is a lawyer. <laughs> and she's, no, nah, I've done this before. I said, my wife is a lawyer and she wants to go to Yelp and she wants to go to PayPal to complain. And I'm telling her that we want to see, give you a little more time to get this together. Yeah. And, and because at the end of the day, you want results. I don't own these people I'm talking to online, anything. So in that case, uh, you know, you, you want to be able to get results. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'll tell her, you know, and so I'll say, yeah, you know, she's an attorney and she's not happy. Mm -hmm. And then you can see the way they respond from this. Oh, no, we, we, you know, we, we hear you and we'll get back to you probably. We apologize that we didn't have, you get a whole other energy because yeah. people know that law fees are not cheap. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes you have to do, and sure enough, you know, bing, bing, it arrives, and everything's fixed. And so, you know, you want results. Mm -hmm. You want to, you know, and so there are times when you do have to, you know, not be played with. Yeah. What, what are the, you've told a lot of them, but just in case there's more. Yeah, it's all good. What, what is a story that you've never gotten to talk about or what is something that, people wouldn't think to ask, but is an interesting thing about you or is an interesting story? About me with the, with the animation or in life or what? Like just any story that that is like a really good story that you, it don't even gotta be related to anything. <laughs> okay, um, let's see, it's so many. Um, <laughs> oh, wow, what's a story that somebody would not ask? That's a good question. I would say that, um, when um, I was living in, oh yes, yeah, it's, it's all kind of stuff. Here's a, I mean, somebody might get, get a, I was shining shoes, right? 
I was a little kid and I used to go to this Italian place and uh, and and this was in New Jersey and these guys were real Italians, them kind, real ones. <laughs> so I go and so when I how I got a shoe shine box in school in wood class, I made it in there. Another cat showed me what to do, but he told me, he said, if you ever get shoe polish on one of the Italian socks, they're going to show you, throw you in the Hudson River. So never do that. And so we put these little uh, paper canisters in the sides of the shoes. So anyway, I go to this place to shine God's shoe and some, <laughs> some shoe polish got in the guy's shop. And these are like real, real mafias. And so I stop and I freeze. I'm a little kid. And I say to the man, I say, I said, this this one's on me. He said, what's the matter? Kid? What do you mean? What are you talking about? I said, yeah, I got some shoe polish on your socks. And he said, oh, no. I said, you ain't going to throw me in the, in the Hudson River. And he said, ah. He said, oh, kid. He said, then he called him in, Tony Baloney, come in. Johnny Salami, come in. Can't tell him what you just did about And then I was telling him. And um, then they just, they all gave me extra money just for that. And I just remember going home and giving the money to my mother and just, re just remembering that. But it was just so, so many. I remember DJing in my room and turning the music up loud and a crack went in the whole wall. And, uh, and all that. I remember, you know, stuff like that. I remember um, going over the roof in the projects with Shane one time. When the elevators broke on one side, it's easier to go, if you live on a high floor, to go over the roof. One of my all-time heroes was getting ready to shoot in his arm. And we, when we opened the door to go to the room, we saw him, we told him, and said, come here, Zach, and come here, Shane. You run, I'm going to catch you. And he had made Shane hold the mm -hmm. belt around him like that. And we stood there, and then while he did, and got a shot. And then he was telling us, he said, remember I scored 49 for Exit County? I don't want to say his name, but some people are going to figure it out if they watch this back here. He said, remember I scored 49 for Exit County College? Well, I blew it all, and you guys bet, you know, you you know, he didn't say guys, but I'm trying to be nice. He said, if you ever mess up like this, I'm going to screw up your lives like this, and all that. He was giving us that talk, and I remember we just, after he got his final shot, we said, can we go now? And he said, yeah, we ran across the roof, and I remember the impact I had that had on me watching this guy who was like one of my heroes play ball, and, um, and, and, making us help him shooting his arm. I mean, that was like, you know, well. And another time I remember going to school and with one of my other friends and he was in the other project and we went, I went to pick him up and while I was, went to go pick him up, his mother was having sex right on the couch to make some money with a strange dude right there. And she was having a conversation with us why they were both naked. That was weird. She was saying, well, you make sure you put on your shoes and take that toast with you. And the guy was just, huh, huh, huh. And we had little kids. I'm like, oh, boy. I mean, you know, it's just certain things that as a kid that you, you know, somebody else, they go, oh, I don't need, yes, you do need to hear that. Because that's what kids in some of these urban cities, and not just urban, in different places, 
are witnessing even worse than that these days. Yeah. And, you know, when we grow up, it has an impact on us. Some of the stuff that we witness. Yeah. So, you know, it's just all kind of things that I just, you know, that come to mind that I just remember growing up as a kid back home. You know, it just, you just remember all that stuff. So was there any one of color that inspired you in the animation business? Um, the people that inspired me are people that I talked about already pretty much. Uh, Scatman Crothers definitely inspired me. When I, um, you know, when I seen people come in later, you know, even people, you know, like, you know, even people like, you know, Ron Myrick, people that I saw later on come in and, and it's definitely represent us in such a positive way mm -hmm. and move the needle forward and bring his sons and other people in the business too. Those are people that, uh, that I, I kind of look at. I didn't have a whole lot of people of color to look at when I got in the game, but when you do see them, and, you know, especially when they don't act funny. I mean, you know, because sometimes people don't know how to act when they're around other blacks. They don't, you know, they're so comfortable being around uh, non-blacks that they don't know how to act around you. Mm -hmm. But uh, but but Bruce Smith was my man too. I dug him. Uh, his, it was a guy named Courtney that worked a little bit. And, uh, you know, I watched them cats come along and, and uh, it was uh, they always kept it a hundred, but I always, I mean, being with Mr. Hannah and Mr. Marbury, I always got love anyway. So it was like a path. I, with some people, I didn't really have to have the, 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 the breaking in kind of game. They, when people would just see me, oh yeah, that's Joe and Bill's guy. And so because of my association with them, I, I really, you know, I got a lot of jelly on the plate. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, and they, they made that kind of, and you know, I was, you know, we um, opened the first day of Cartoon Network when Mr. Barbarian broke the champagne bottle on the, the, mm -hmm. you know, the first day there, and, uh, you know, just so, so, so much, and um, I'm going to send you um, some footage from, uh, you know, from uh, Comic-Con, and, and yeah. I a couple pictures from the housing projects I grew up in. Mm -hmm. that way that you can just kind of, you know, get an idea visually of, because uh, it's so bad. Wow. What a journey. Yeah. So uh, from the first time I talked to you, like I only got a few words to hopefully spark your memory, but hopefully you know what this means because I don't. So like there's a story about two little girls. Uh, I don't oh my God! That's a deep, 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 deep story. Uh, the two little white girls. I don't. I just wrote a story about two little girls, and I, I was hoping you knew what I was talking about because <laughs> I, I, you know, this was when we first talked, so I don't even remember this what. This is one of the deepest things that ever happened to me in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I was at the studio. Oh, wow, boy, you really hit something there. I was at the studio and um, I was busy because my job was busy. I'm with Miss Hannah in the morning, Miss Barbara in the afternoon. When I started, you know, because of my personality and getting popular, they would start asking me to do all these other little things that had to do with PR mostly. So there's one day the lady from Blissey said, call us. Yeah. And she said, well, we got these two little girls from Children's Services that they're, they're really, really big into Scooby-Doo and uh, they want to bring them by in, uh, in two months and 
we were all having a meeting and we were just saying, because of your background and stuff, you would be great to give him a tour and show him around. So, oh yeah, sure, whatever. Da 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 da. I'm busy and I almost forgot. The day comes and it comes. I'm in my uh, office and uh, one of the switchboard operators comes in my office and crying. Says, oh, Carlton, oh my God. I said, what? They said, those two little girls are here and they, and I said, what? She says, well, and then the lady came in and she gave me the lowdown. These two little girls, two little white girls, I think it was Bakersfield, they were in a trailer and was being raped and held kidnapped by their mother's boyfriend ever since they were born. They never got out of the, uh, the, the, the camper. They, uh, and all they watched was Scooby-Doo on TV. They were, they, they, they were a year, maybe a year or two apart. They were they had they had all kind of problems scratches white little white kids scratches all over, and the whole bit. So I said, really? Say yeah, and they're in the lobby. So I walk out in the lobby when I see them, they're scared. They don't want to talk or nothing. Mm -hmm. And so it just I wanted to cry. It just hit me. I just said, ooh. Mm -hmm. So I said, hi girls. I said, welcome to Hanna Barbera. I'm Carlton. And I said, this is where we make Scooby Doo. And I said, you're gonna meet the creators of it. We're gonna give you goodies and everything. We're so happy you're here. They said, do you wanna um, meet, um, uh, which is Iwo Takamoto, you wanna meet the, the guy who made Scooby-Doo? And one whispered the other was here. And I go, well, you wanna meet Mr. Hannah or Mr. Barbera? And he, what, what do you wanna do? You, you, you like Scooby? You wanna, what y'all wanna see? And I said, whoa, it was just really weird. And I said, wow. Then I stopped thinking. So then I screwed So I said, okay. So, um, and then people were coming around. They were like free. I was like, none of that. Because I know how that game is. Yeah. And, um, and, and the counselor was like, watch me do my thing. And so I called Jeff. And I said, Jeff, you know, he was the guy that works. Uh, he still works there, but he was working with all the equipment. I said, set a monitor up in the conference room and bring all the top Scooby-Doo videos there. And so um, I said, so, okay, and he went, put that stuff in there. And I said to the girls, I said, um, do you, um, I said, you want to just watch Scooby-Doo? I said, you don't want nobody there, though, do you want to watch it alone, right? And they said, <laughs> and they would whisper to each other. So I set the monitor, he set the monitor up, and I, uh, the counselor brought them, I put them in the room and people were bringing donations, people to work out around the studio, it was crazy, I'll never forget. Mm -hmm. And so um, they, um, they, I said to monitor, they sat with each other and they were really guarded, but they watched and they were laughing at certain parts of Scooby and I know all of Scooby, so I would just say, oh, watch the part now, watch what Scooby does. And I'm, <laughs> And then finally, I never forget this feeling after, because I had to go and change certain episodes to keep it going. And then I said to the little girls, I said, I said, can I watch with you? And one whispered to the other, and they looked at me. Yeah. felt like I just hit the lottery. And I went, I didn't get too close. I stood behind him, and I overlapped with, you know, because I, I was like, <laughs> and all that. And uh, watching, and uh, they didn't want to meet nobody. 
And I just remember um, people would come to the door and I'd go to the door and they would uh, drink uh, stuffed Scooby animals and Yogi Bears and, uh, and they uh, get money and all that. And uh, they, the counselor was really impressed with me that I got them because they said they didn't think. And, um, you know, I'll never forget because that day when I went on and I drove home, I was crying. Mm -hmm. I was actually crying because I was just saying, here I am, grew up in the housing project. I always talk about how rough it is and drugs and all that. I couldn't imagine what them two little white girls went through. Tougher than anything I could imagine. So young, you know? And the dude, uh, whoever the guy was, he took advantage of the mother too, had her held captive. And, um, you know, and I, I never knew later, later what happened, but I stayed, we stayed in touch with them for some time. But that really, really was one of the toughest things I ever experienced. And, you know, they wouldn't let nobody in. They just had this little world with each other. Yeah. And it just, it just, it, the impact was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that as long as I live. My, uh, my last question is, um, if someone was producing a documentary about you, what things would you want them to highlight outside of your uh, work in animation and music? Like, what extra stuff would you like them to highlight? Oh, I'd want them to highlight me growing up in the projects and how we hung out how people would have harmony, the talent that was there, people singing the old harmony songs in the hallway, me playing ball outside, or the old lady telling us to shut up and keep it down. You know, just the world inside the housing project, watching fights and, uh, you know, people fighting, and just all the different things that made us who we are. That was, that, those experiences are so much richer than anything else. I think those memories, I, and, you know, as good as the animation world has been and how much I love, there's nothing like when, you know, that big pot of food when mom cooking something or the winter times when you were, you know, or the basement parties or, you know, or going to the ball games. I mean, it's just, it would really be about growing up in a housing project and not just the bad stuff, but how good things how you enjoy and make good things happen in bad situations. Yeah. Just now, even a lot of wealthy people that I meet, you know, there's a lot of dysfunction in the house. We didn't have nothing, so we can't fight over dad left you more money than us and none. We ain't, none of us ain't got nothing. So, right. we, so either we like you or you don't. It's just for who you are. It would definitely, any story about me would be based on a project. And then if it's long enough, how you go from there and then transition into a successful animation uh, journey. So I would like to thank you for coming on my platform, allowing me to highlight you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you and I salute you and uh, thank you for what you're doing. And uh, I'll just leave you with this quote because there's a lot of women that are young girls that you're setting a path for, and you got to be a uh, uh, you got to be aware of that. And not only that, control your emotions. Don't mm-hmm. let nobody shake you. 
Do mm-hmm. your Obama and wipe it off your shoulder and keep moving. Because yes. there's other people that's that's coming in your steps. And so um, you know, and just know deep in your heart and soul that you matter and that your purpose here is bigger than anything you could think of right now. Mm-hmm. And go get them. Because I I am definitely impressed by and with you mm-hmm. and anything I could do. And um, and you know, I know just about everybody, especially all the seasoned people in the business, and I'll definitely direct some of them your way. It's a lot of people that I think you need to talk to that uh, people of color in this business that can kind of give you some other perspective. But in terms of the housing project back east, down here, that's me. Right. <laughs> so to everyone out there, I want you to like. So I know it's real. Comment and tell me how you feel. Subscribe to Silver Deal and sign up for post notifications to show your zeal. And I'll see you in the next video. Peace. 100. <laughs> <laughs>